This is Unfilter, episode 375 for February 11th, 2022. There is no end in sight to the literal and political gridlock in Ottawa, Canada, as the Freedom Convoy truckers vow to remain until COVID-19 vaccine mandates are lifted. Engines revving outside Parliament. I'm the last one to leave. This is my new address. Yeah, I got my mail forwarded here. There's nothing extreme about wanting people to be able to make their own decisions in their home that is the best decision for their families. Leaders here in Ottawa are requesting an additional 1,800 police officers to, quote, quell the insurrection. Friends and welcome into episode 375 of the People's History Podcast. You little insurrectionists, you know, you're probably violating some kind of thought crime just listening to the podcast. I hope it's worth it for you. It's nice to be back. The last few weeks have been quite the process. I have been so damn angry. I have been so, so damn angry, and I have not wanted to bring that on air. I am so mad at what's going on with inflation and what's going on with the middle class. I am so mad what's going on with COVID policies and these truckers. I've had to think about things. I've had to process things. It takes time. I got to go through and like question my life choices, you know, and do all those things. It's a process. (laughs) So I apologize, but sometimes I have to go through these kinds of things. And in some ways, too, I was kind of waiting for the world to catch up. And I know that sounds like a hubris statement, but I really do mean it. I I feel like I was waiting for the world to catch up to the stuff that we were talking about a year ago, right? I mean, you and I were talking about this stuff. And that's part of what has been so damn frustrating is to watch things unfold, to watch the world kind of fall apart exactly like we knew it would. And without without the benefit of having solved COVID, without the benefit of of like saving millions of lives, right? Like we still lost millions of lives. We still destroyed and decimated our economies and we have done damage to the middle class that is going to far surpass anything climate change will do to any of us in the next 50 years. That's what we've done to ourselves. And we're not even holding anyone accountable except the truckers up in Canada, which has now turned into a global movement really, hasn't it? It's turned into something that's happening throughout the West. Uh, But it didn't start very strong. It started as a murmur down here in the States. Because what we were getting told was that it was just a handful of people, you see. A couple of hundred right-wing extremists are driving their trucks into cities and blocking the roads. That's kind of how it played out for the first few days, uh, starting about... About two weeks ago, that was the message we were getting. Hundreds of truckers continue to roll east. And with more joining the movement with each passing city, feelings towards vaccine mandates have heightened. I advocate civil war. If people don't want to stand up, we've got guns, we'll stand up and we'll bring them out. While this sentiment is shared by a fraction of protesters, it's visible in their social media discussions, with some calling for Canada's version of the January 6th insurrection. Oh, there's our first link. It's an insurrection, right? And I know so many of you listening from the very beginning have noticed the duality in coverage here. Or the bias, perhaps. 
because we were all sitting here on the live streams watching the BLM riots, watching the reporters with, with buildings burning behind them. Ari from MSNBC with the buildings burning behind him, calling it a mostly peaceful protest. And then many of you who are in the live stream right now were sitting here with me as we live stream the January 6th protest slash insurrection. We were there. We watched it. We were there virtually. We were, I pulled up dozens of feeds. We were watching the feeds. We were, we were, we were tapped in on both the BLM stuff, the January 6th stuff, and I know you've been watching this, and I know that you've noticed the duality in coverage here. This is an insurrection. We're using the same language. This is an insurrection. This national security expert says it's unlikely the so-called Freedom Convoy is as organized as what happened in the U.S. Capitol, but... the Yeah, well, they have no FBI. <laughs> How could it be, right? <laughs> they don't have people organizing an insurrection. Of the January 6th insurrection. This national security expert says it's unlikely the so-called Freedom Convoy is as organized as what happened in the U.S. Capitol, but... Also, you've probably noticed the so-called Freedom Convoy. So-called. So-called, right? So-called Freedom Convoy. <laughs> it's visible in their social media discussions, with some calling for Canada's version of the January 6th insurrection. This national security expert says it's unlikely the so-called Freedom Convoy is as organized as what happened in the U.S. Capitol, but... The rhetoric that we're seeing, hanging politicians, uh, driving trucks through 16-foot walls, this kind of stuff is, is disturbing and definitely will be on the minds, I think, of security officials going forward. It's, it's almost like people are at their absolute fucking limit all around the world, and they're all experiencing a tyrannical government that they're pushing back against, and so the common themes keep coming up around the places. It's almost like things have gone on for too long, too far. But no, no, it must not be that. It must be that somehow Canadians have been inspired by QAnon and no, no doubt the QAnon shaman. And of course, Donald Trump from Florida has inspired these Canadians to take action. On Tuesday, police forces in Saskatchewan noted about 1,200 semis were part of the convoy and more are joining with drivers coming from the Maritimes, Quebec and Ontario. And of course, that, this, is, this clip is from about two weeks ago. Uh, and it built, it became, it's so much more than just the truckers now. Although absolutely this thing's built on the back of the truckers, uh, no doubt about it, but it is, it is about the people now and they have arrived in Canada's capital. Sounds of horns blared all over downtown Ottawa on a frigid night. The cold not keeping protesters from delivering their message. I'm a vaxxed trucker and I'm here to support my unvaxxed colleagues. It's wrong to force people to undergo a med medical procedure against their will. What I have been seeing so far is every single Canadian doing what they do and is peacefully protesting and loving each other and spreading cheer and hope and happiness. You know what I just love is the way that Canadians talk. Yeah! Just take a look around. We are in front of the parliament buildings right now and there are already hundreds of protesters dozens of trucks lining Wellington Street and this is just the night before the main convoys well they haven't even arrived yet and they do arrive and it's a beautiful thing it truly was a winter of love my friends it was a winter of love wait what a court order I'm sorry what a court order to seek out and remove Canadian truckers? officials are facing mounting pressure from the Biden administration to resolve the trucker protest against COVID mandates 
The Biden administration, let's be clear, they don't like this for political reasons. They'll tell you it's about the supply chain, and that absolutely is a component. Absolutely that is a component, and it should be the biggest component. But you know it's not, because if the supply chain was the biggest component, then on January 22nd, they wouldn't have implemented the requirement that Canadian truckers have to isolate after crossing the border if they're not vaccinated, even though they're already isolated in their trucks, which would have a dramatic impact on the supply chain. So using the supply chain as the reason why they're concerned is a front. It's a front for political heat because this looks bad for Democrats. Democratic governors all over the country are dealing with the political fallout from Canadians. And this shows you how docile Americans are, how easily they've rolled over, and how little they would have had to push back to change things. Because people up in Canada are, are managing to put pressure on the Biden administration. Imagine what would have happened if even in one city in America this would have happened. But they got us. They gaslit us. They got us. But the Canadians and the, and the truckers, they're working class people. They're common sense people. They're connected to the everyday flow of things. They don't speak the world of business jargon. They don't analyze the high levels all day. They don't wrap their arms around the big problems. They live life and they move shit from place one to place two. That's what they do. And they they know their job. The Biden administration claiming it's because of the supply chain. <laughs> done anything like they've done anything because of the supply chain <laughs> oh here workers you can work 24 hours now okay problem solved canadian officials are facing mounting pressure from the biden administration to resolve the trucker protest against covid mandates as the convoy blocks crucial trade routes between the two countries so chris van cleave is in detroit where uh the where they have blocked the ambassador bridge and that continues uh so actually let me ask you chris what is the current situation on the ambassador bridge the Ambassador Bridge remains closed in both directions. In fact, we haven't seen a vehicle come across this bridge since uh, when we, the night we got here on Wednesday. That's actually been changed now as I record. They've opened up a lane for supplies because, because Joe Biden cares so much about the supply chain. Um, it will be nice to see. Maybe, maybe now Canadians will have inspired. There's talks of a... Uh, a convoy, I suppose, starting in California. Uh, we'll see. We'll see if it... I, I, I think Americans are too lazy and too self-centered to do this. Like I said, I'm angry, though. So that's me coming from a very angry position right now. What's been hard to watch is just how, how hard the media here in the States has gone on these are right-wing lunatics. Some of the organizers of this protest, which, as I mentioned, started more than a week ago, they do want to overthrow the government. Canadian officials calling the situation a, quote, nationwide insurrection. The police chief says COVID protests are a, quote, nationwide insurrection driven by madness. A nationwide insurrection 
driven by madness. And just think of the language. I know it sounds familiar to you, right? A threat to democracy, uh, an insurrection, sedition. The police say that they are under-resourced and they are overwhelmed. They have said that this city is under siege. It's not just truckers. There's a lot of, I, I've heard there's QAnon supporters in the crowd. Residents that I have spoken to who say they feel terrorized, intimidated. It's a cult. <laughs> so when it's the working class, they're insurrectionists. Uh, it's a cult. Uh, they're right-wing lunatics. They want to overthrow the government. When it is a bunch of crazy, misguided, gaslit kids who want to take over a city and call it Chaz, that's a summer of love. That's an expression of democracy. In fact, that's so important. It's more important than COVID-19. It's so important that doctors co-signed a letter saying that solving the racial inequities that the BLM protesters are fighting against was more important, was more important than saving lives from COVID-19. In Ottawa, a statue was pulled down. A giant statue was pulled down. Buildings lit on fire. In Seattle, a seven-year-old boy was murdered and hid at a taco shop. Portland for nine months, was on fire, at least during the night. I guess they did get to put it out during the day sometimes. So that's better. But I think we need to reconnect with who's really out there at this protest. And there was this man-on-the-street scene that was just sort of a raw moment that I think captures the people. And it was just after the second round of funding had been cut off. GoFundMe got cut off. This other bullshit knockoff company I never heard of, their funding got cut off. It was after the second rounding of funding got, off, got cut off, and this guy is walking around on the streets. And what you see is a play area for children and a French-Canadian making breakfast. I don't see insurrectionists. I don't see violent people. I, I'll play this clip, and you tell me who you see in the chat room. And a real important thing for this uh, convoy because the funding of it has been a key. It's been very well organized to the point. I'm standing in what is a child care area here. We're early and the kids aren't here yet, but this is what they've set up. I mean, they've got everything. They're smoking meat over here uh, and we're right in front of Parliament. This is uh, the exit and entrance for a lot of uh, people, members of Parliament. And, you know, yesterday I watched people come out after debating and even some of the Parliament members who are in favor of the mandates, and that's Nobody accosted them. Nobody, uh, you know, chased them into the bathroom or anything. Uh, this has been a very uh, peaceful, in my view, very peaceful protest. You mean mostly peaceful or do you mean actually peaceful? Throughout. Occasionally you get somebody who's, you know, starts a little trouble. But Oh, so mostly peaceful. Well, we can't have that. But generally this is a peaceful uh, movement here that has gone well beyond the truckers. Uh, maybe you see this is... Uh, <laughs> And you hear, you often hear the the tones of fr French because <laughs> there are plenty of French Canadians. Yeah, here. that's the, the la petite Quebec. <laughs> Why are you here? Uh, to get our freedom back. I don't want to raise my kids with masks and QR codes, so that's why we're here. What are you making this morning? Uh, bacon and eggs. He doesn't want to raise his kids with masks and QR codes. I got to be honest with you, as a dad of three, three kids, I love a lot. That, that strikes a note with me. 
God, I don't want my kids to grow up in that world. <sighs> you know, in a weird way, like the mask thing, if it's temporary or during a bad flu season, like, okay, I could live with that. I don't love it, but I could live with it. I'd like them to use masks that are effective. But the QR code thing, you know, makes me sad thinking they grow up in a world where to go into a theater or a concert or on an airplane, they have to have a QR code that they keep with them. And man, if they start that now at like 13 years old or 10 years old, that's going to follow them their entire lives. Canadians yeah, here. that's the, the, the petite Quebec. See. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you here? Uh, to get our freedom back. I don't want to raise my kids with mask and QR code, so that's why we're here. What are you making this morning? Uh, bacon and eggs. I just started, so I'm cooking the bacon first, and uh, we have uh, plenty of eggs. So uh, It sounds like you're here for the long haul. Yeah, I'm here since day one, so it's been 15 days. We're in Ottawa right now. I'm with my wife and kids, uh, so we're here to stay. feel very deeply about this to make that kind of a commitment. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, uh, we're all in this together, but people don't realize how we we struggling in, in, in this and we, we need a QR code for this or QR code for that. And so it's like, too much. yeah, it's too much. Man, what a racist insurrectionist. And the pressure we have to, to get vaccinated, there's something about it that just don't work. Are you vaccinated? It's medical information. It's not the, of your business. <laughs> okay, that's a fair. That's a fair answer. Yeah, yep. but you just don't want to be mandated. Yeah, to, that, that's it. I just don't want to. I, and all the mandates, and it's going to be all right. Got it. I appreciate it. Yeah. I'll let you get back to breakfast. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, you can just walk up to pretty much anybody here, and uh, they've got something to tell you. Their passion carrying Canadian flags, as I see this gentleman here, right here. Now, if you didn't watch the live streams. If you didn't obsess over it, I understand. You got a lot going on. And, uh, you know, Chaz wasn't in your city. I understand. But I watched, I watched like all of the local news anchors' Twitter feeds, their YouTube channels. Uh, and what I saw is the press were attacked when they walked around the BLM protests. The press were attacked. Uh, in fact, towards the end, they had in, they had very specific tactics to surround and suppress anybody who had a like you know large institutional kind of media camera, a legacy setup. Uh, tell me why you're here, sir. I'm a 60 year old grandfather who's been fired from his job by General Motors of Canada on December 12th. They told all non-vax people to just leave. They cut us all out. My 31-year-old son has lost his job. He will be in April. He's been told he's gone because he's not vaxxed. And my daughter, who was pregnant in the fall and being asked to vax, had to uh, leave early and give birth to a child prematurely after the government was harassing her to uh, take the vaccine. So my family has been impacted in hundreds of thousands of dollars. My son-in-law has his own business, consulting business, and he's losing tens of thousands of dollars. The government has decided to punish their people, and I'm here to stop it. You feel very passionate about this. I will die to protect my family and my children from overreach by the government. This guy is on the verge of tears, and his situation compels the anchor to become emotional. I hear, I'm here for peace, for love, and satisfaction of people living in a country in unity. And this Mr. Trudeau 
does not deserve the title of prime minister. He is an insult to Canadians. I just want to know how far Mr. Trudeau would go if somebody took the food off of his table, because that's how far I'm going to go, Mr. Trudeau. Mark my words, Mr. Trudeau. Sir, I appreciate very much you sharing your story. Thank I can you. see your, uh, I can see the emotion. Thank you. No one could say it better, perhaps, in terms of a spokesman for this group. Uh, and that's just a guy I walked up to. I, didn't, I didn't, hadn't talked to him before. Um, that's what we're, we're seeing out here. Jeff. Wow. That is powerful. And, uh, and the way these, the plight of these people gets twisted by the establishment, it's so sick. And, you know, they can ban the horns and they can take away their gas, but the Canadian truckers, they just, they always find a way to get their point across, uh, will rev their engines and they'll they'll smash together and clank together their empty gas cans. That's what the working class sounds like. You know, you can label it as you want. Uh, and I, I think Trudeau is taking damage over this. Uh, you can see it in in ways that's never really materialized before. He got booed and heckled when he was trying to defend his COVID policies. Countries around the world are opening up. Even countries with lower vaccination rates than Canada. Provinces are beginning to lift restriction, restrictions and getting life back to normal. Why? Because they're following the science. Canadians are ready to get their life back. But it seems like the Prime Minister wants to live in a permanent pandemic. Dr. Ham, Dr. Tam, Dr. Henry, Dr. Moore, Dr. Hinshaw, Dr. Shahab all agree it's time to shift out of the restrictions and back to normal life. So why is the Prime Minister so offside, not only with the science, but it would seem like with a growing mem number of his own MPs? Right, Honourable Prime Minister. On the contrary, Mr. Speaker, we intend to follow the science and are working closely with Dr. Tam and other public health officials uh, to ensure that we get through this pandemic as best we possibly can. And that has been... Now, the science at this point clearly demonstrates that the vaccines that were developed at the very beginning of the pandemic, the vaccines that are currently under the emergency use authorization, not the vaccines that have been developed afterwards, but those early vaccines, they're not effective against Omicron. And those who have been vaccinated are spreading... Omicron. It's they're there. In fact, in some cases, Dr. Fauci said it himself. Those who have been vaccinated can actually be carrying a higher viral load in their nose. And when they sneeze or cough, they can actually have a higher viral load. The science has demonstrated that. And so that's the problem is you can stand up there and say we're following the science. But the reality is what you have demonstrated and what has been demonstrated by many leaders over the last couple of years is that they're selectively following the science. And initially, I could make that accusation I didn't know for sure, right? I could say something like that. Who knows? Now, now we fucking know. We are two fucking years into this thing, and we have watched these sons of bitches selectively choose which science they follow to implement the policies that covers their ass the, wi the widest. That's what they're trying to do. It's cover your ass selective science. 
On the contrary, Mr. Speaker, we intend to follow the science and are working closely with Dr. Tam and other public health officials uh, to ensure that we get through this pandemic as best we possibly can. And that has been through vaccinations. The fact that 9 out of 10 Canadians have gotten vaccinated is one of the reasons why we're able to get through this. The other thing that doesn't, it doesn't seem to acknowledge is the vax-only strategy doesn't seem to ever acknowledge that you need a multi-pronged solution. And so he just said it there. Nine out of ten Canadians are vaccinated. That's what he just said. So then why is there still such a problem? What's the deal? Clearly, a better solution, a more evolved solution, a multi-pronged solution is needed. If you say nine out of 10 Canadians are vaccinated and yet here we are two fucking years into this thing. Some kind of reckoning, some sort of reconciliation has to be done on the books to explain that is why uh, we've been able to prevent our health systems from being completely overrun. Vaccinations are the one, the thing through this. That's why we're continuing to encourage Canadians to get vaccinated. Uh, why, unfortunately, the Conservatives are, are against vaccination is, quite frankly, belonging. And it's amazing, too, to watch the same dynamic play out. It's, 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 like, a, it's like a B-movie version of the United States politics here. Uh, conservatives against progressives, right? The conservatives are anti-vax and the progressives are pro-vax. But in the reality, like they're each choosing to play a political game to their base. However, it just seems on its face obvious at this point that you need a wider strategy. And that, imagine for a moment, if you will, tomorrow they call you and they say, Justin is out. Nobody likes Trudeau. Somehow, the Queen declared it so. Uh, you're actually running Canada now. I'm serious. Just please think of this for a second. I know this is crazy, but think about it. What action would you take to help as many people as possible? I could tell you what I would do. I wouldn't be doing this this absolutely pig-headed vaccine-only approach. Vaccines, testing, treatments, research. Research ivermectin. I've got links that show that ivermectin, studies have been done now, after the fact, conveniently, the show ivermectin is actually quite effective if done during the treatment phase. Funny how that fucking works, isn't it? If you really wanted to solve this problem, you wouldn't take this approach, would you? That's what I'm trying to get at here. I mean, honestly, think about it for a second. I'm trying, I'm, I'm pleading with you to please think about it for a second. Would you take this approach? You wouldn't, would you? Because it's not effective. Vaccinations are the one, the thing through this. That's why we're continuing to encourage Canadians to get vaccinated. Uh, why, unfortunately, the Conservatives are, are against vaccination is, quite frankly, belonging. The Honourable Leader of the Opposition. Well, the science. 
evidence, and the evidence is just simply not on the Prime Minister's side. Many of the reasons previously used to keep Canadians under restrictions are vanishing before our eyes. Other countries are opening up. Provinces are opening up. As he just said, 90% of Canadians have the vaccine. The Prime Minister needs to put his ego aside. He needs to do what's right for the country. He needs to end the mandates. He needs to end the restrictions. He needs to listen to his own caucus. Will he do that? The Right Honourable Prime Minister. Canadians have made it through this pandemic better than many other places because Canadians stepped up. They were there for each other. Uh, their government had their backs. We worked closely uh, with provincial and territorial leaders. Every step of the way, we kept focusing on vaccinations, on public health supports, on business supports. It's allowed us through. And Canadians are continuing to get vaccinated. 60,000 Canadians got vaccinated with their first dose just last week. We are continuing to make sure Canadians get vaccinated because this is how we get through this pandemic. He moves the goalpost because my argument is now that the vaccine is insufficient to stopping the pandemic. The science shows that. The Honourable Leader of the Opposition. Mr. Speaker, we know this Prime Minister has politicized the pandemic. This summer, as BC was burning, Afghanistan was falling, and we were in the fourth wave of a pandemic, the Prime Minister called an unnecessary $600 million election to capitalize on this crisis. According to a senior Liberal MP, a decision was made to wedge, to divide, and to stigmatize. So, a country more divided than ever before. Can the Prime Minister tell Canadians why he would politicize the pandemic, why he would try to stigmatize Canadians, why would he do this to a country that is already suffering and deeply damaged by so many of his policies? And here's where the duality of Trudeau's situation is also revealed. Or, you know, the hypocrisy, if you like. Justin Trudeau is justifying the lockdowns and the suppression of the economy in the name of health. We have to do it to save lives. You care about money and the economy? I care about lives. That was thrown in my face a hundred times towards the beginning of the pandemic. But the economy is the very fucking reason he wants them to allow shipments through the bridge. It's the very reason they want to shut the truckers down and end the protests is because it's suppressing the economy. So now all of a sudden the economy matters. Now all of a sudden it's okay for his party to say, well, what about the economy, stupid? When I was asking what about the economy, I was a cold killer. When Justin Trudeau is asking what about the economy, It's because he's just trying to save the city because trade is their number one business. It's simply the logical thing to do. Prime Minister. About last year's election, it was an opportunity for Canadians to weigh in. Last year's election was a political stunt that you scared people. That was at the height of the COVID panic. On the path forward for our country, on how to continue to fight this pandemic. This pushback that he is getting right now is the political blowback 
from capitalizing on the pandemic in the way that he did. What we saw, unfortunately, from the Conservative Party of Canada was a refusal to step up on vaccination, a refusal to follow science. As they were uh, talking about how we get through this pandemic, they couldn't ensure their own MPs got vaccinated. Mr. Speaker, Canadians spoke loudly and clearly in the last election. He's not addressing any of her points. He's completely talking past her. That science and vaccination was the way through. They gave us in this house a mandate to move forward on that, and we did. The Honourable Leader of the Opposition. The Prime Minister is clearly trying to strategically and very selfishly divide and stigmatize Canadians. Mr. Speaker, we live in a beautiful country, but our country is suffering. Our country is divided. Our country is tired and they need leadership. So again, I'm going to ask the Prime Minister. His senior Liberal MP said that there is a strategic decision made on that side to stigmatize, and these are not my words, stigmatize, divide, and wedge. This is what the Prime Minister did. Boy, leaks suck, don't they? Man, sure sucks when you say something evil like that and it leaks out. Senior Liberal MP said that there is a strategic decision made on that side to stigmatize, and these are not my words, stigmatize, divide, and wedge. This is what the Prime Minister did. Why? The right Honourable Prime Minister. I'm sure they answer this. Needed through this pandemic and what this government has provided has been responsible leadership that put the health and safety of Canadians first and foremost. That's exactly what we did. That's exactly what we talked about in the last election campaign. That's exactly what we're going to continue to do in following the science. He's got no answers. He's just repeating himself. They've got him. I mean, this is going to cost him. This has damaged him badly. This is the risk you run by leveraging it. You know, uh, Joe Biden promised to shut down the virus. And now look at his look at his approval ratings. <laughs> have you looked at Joe Biden's approval ratings? I don't it depends what news outlets you follow. You may or may not have seen it. Uh, you promise something like that and then can't deliver because you don't control nature and you don't control and you didn't accommodate human nature. Look what happens. But, you know, the overreach is creepy in all of this, labeling people, small little demonstrations of power too, making it clear that the government is watching what you say online and will come visit you. And of course, because it's Canada, it's the most polite police knock ever. But the message is still clear. We're watching what you say online and we're monitoring you. Sorry, since you're at my home, can I just get your name and your badge yeah. number, please? I have a card here. Okay. It's Erica Ingram. Thank okay. you. And this is just some information about peaceful protests. That's all it is. Okay, so you saw something on my Facebook? No, on the Facebook <clears throat> group. Okay, and decided to come to my personal residence to give me information about peaceful protest? Yes. Okay, so are the Peterborough police, no, you're with OPP? Um, are you guys now monitoring people's Facebook pages or Facebook groups to who comments as to what they're um, 
uh, status updates are or what they're doing or okay. so within the group? Just like because of the protests happening province-wide, you know, yes, just, we have been monitoring. Just for a little bit. We're just watching you for a little bit. And, you know, if you say something stupid, we're going to show up at your house. Uh, we're going to be nice about it, but the message is clear. We're watching what you're saying here. Uh, but the reality is I think things are changing. This is a signal that people are tired of it. And I think that's universally true. Um, people are tired of it. And uh, things haven't worked. All of the mandates, the restrictions, the rushed vaccine, it just hasn't worked properly. You know, some of it's helped. All of it's probably helped a little bit, right? And it'll be up to history to figure out what was worth doing and what wasn't worth doing. Um, and what we did wrong just in the name of politics. And I think we made some serious mistakes. But I think the protests are making a difference. The politest country in the world is saving the West. In Ottawa, where those protesters have been filling the streets with their bullhorns, their posters and their banners. Trevor, you've seen it all. So now some of the Canadian provinces, right, are pulling back their restrictions about these protests. What do you know? Well, Kira, I can tell you this is happening on a few different uh, in a few different provinces here in Canada. We know that Alberta now officially, as of today, has revoked their vaccine passport mandate. The same thing is going to be happening on Monday in Saskatchewan, and they're also looking at removing their indoor mask mandate too. And even over in Quebec, they have rolled out some plans here to basically repeal all of their COVID nineteen restrictions and mandates by mid March or so. So even though it's not happening right now, it is at least a plan. Now, according to officials in all of these provinces. These decisions are not the results of these demonstrations or protests. They insist it's because yeah. of the vaccines oh, yeah, and yeah. because the vaccines are working. And yeah, it's totally not because of the protests. This was going to happen anyways. Um, and some of that may be true to a degree. You know, it, so things are kind of running their course. We're trying to come to a new normal with this thing as the variants become less aggressive. But I think it's a signal to the political class, that they've pushed it as far as they can. And my hypothesis is that they have been monitoring to see how far they can push it, not as like a, you know, evil test, but just watching to see how far they can take things. Almost there, more states are, but the CDC isn't. On the same day Dr. Fauci says we're heading out of this full-blown phase of the pandemic, three more states are rolling back mask mandates. New York, Massachusetts, and we're expecting announcement from Illinois as well. They join a list that just keeps growing. But even today, the CDC is sticking by its recommendations that say masks should be worn by everyone over the age of two in areas of the U.S. with high or substantial COVID spread. As you can see, that is nearly everywhere, according to the CDC's definition. Let's bring in CNN's Bryn Gingrass and CNN's Chief White House Correspondent Caitlin Collins now. Bryn, you're in New York, where certain mask and vaccine mandates are dropping as soon as tomorrow. Tell us more about what the governor is saying about this decision. Yeah, so on the, it was going to sort of go away tomorrow unless she decided to extend it. Essentially, Governor Kathy Hochul saying we're not going to extend it. We're going to drop this indoor mask mandate, which essentially up until this point, businesses, uh, restaurants, grocery stores, they either had to ask for proof of vaccination or require people to wear a mask when they were indoors. So that is going away, which a lot of people, of course, as you can imagine, are very happy about. There is a little bit of a caveat here. If there's a local municipality like New York City, for example, that wants to put those mandates in place, they can. So, so this is 
this is inevitable. You have elections coming, and you're going to see more and more Democrats pivot hard. You're already starting to see this happen in a lot of blue states. Not, not here in Washington, but you are seeing it in some places, a lot of places. Uh, you also have to figure that the best way to solve a protest is to prevent it from ever happening. And so if there is a trucker convoy building in L.A., maybe the best thing to do would be to get ahead of that a little bit <laughs> and start winding things down. So you got elections that are going to play a role in this, and inflation's going to be a killer in the elections. And so getting the economy humming again is going to help with inflation. In fact, there's no way to really solve inflation without solving some of the econ- economic problems that we have. But how are we going to do that if we are going into World War Three? It looks like the situation in Ukraine is predictably spiraling out of control. And the U.S. is pumping the fear hard, claiming today that Russia may strike sometime during the Olympics. Americans in Ukraine should leave now. That's the new and urgent advisory from the U.S. State Department. In an exclusive interview with NBC News' Lester Holt, President Biden has warned that he has no plans to send troops into Ukraine to evacuate any U.S. citizens if Russia invades. That's a world war when Americans and Russia start shooting at one another. American citizens should leave. You know, America, we are the country that leaves you behind. That's right. If you got a problem, we're not coming for you. You're going to need to update that jingle, though. Wait, 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 wait. You're getting nervous, man. Calm down. It's okay. There's a need for a rescue mission. When the world is threatened, when the world needs help, it calls on America. Send troops and that's the into story. Ukraine to evacuate any U.S. citizens if Russia invades. That's a world war when Americans and Russia start shooting at one another. American citizens should leave, should leave now. We're dealing with one of the largest armies in the world. This is a very different situation and things could go crazy quickly. That from Nightly News. This all comes as satellite images show Russia massing even more of its military might on Ukraine's doorstep on three sides. To the south, new deployments of troops, military vehicles, and other equipment in Crimea, the peninsula that Vladimir Putin invaded and stole from Ukraine in 2014. There are also new military deployments on Ukraine's eastern front. You can see all the housing that's been set up for the troops. And there's new and significant activity just 14 miles north of Ukraine's border at an airfield in Belarus. The ex-Soviet Republic is a close Russian ally, proxy state even. It's within close striking distance of Kyiv, Ukraine's capital city. Russia's been pouring troops, tanks, fighter jets, bombers, heavy artillery, and missile systems into that country. The Kremlin claims it's for only joint military exercises, which are underway right now. You know, it's funny is whenever these stories get laid out there, they never talk about the armament in the, in the NATO nations. They always just talk about the Russia buildup. <laughs> it's definitely a two-sided thing, right? Uh, But I have to tell you, while I think it is an unstable situation, I'm pretty skeptical. I think the Biden administration is turning this one up to 11 and wagging the dog a bit. And there's a tell. The administrations always have a tell on these things. And it's just a function of they need to control the information. 
And so they have to expose this, this move to control the information. And that is when an when administration bans press from deploying to the area. Whenever an administration bans press from deploying to an area, they are specifically trying to control the information and distort the reality on the ground. All right, guys, some a few different developments that we wanted to bring you out of Ukraine. The first one is really troubling. Um, let's go ahead and put this up on the screen. So the Military Reporters and Editors Associ- Association is formally asking the Defense Department to allow journalists to embed with the U.S. troops that have been selected to deploy to NATO's eastern flank. What is going on here is that typically when there's a military deployment, Reporters, some number of reporters, are allowed to embed with the troops to get a view from the front lines. Now, let me say, oftentimes those reporters end up being just complete stenographers sure. and propagandists for yeah, the U.S. But government. It's nothing. But it's yeah. better than nothing. Yeah. And bizarrely, with this deployment to Eastern Europe uh, in re- relation to the Ukraine conflict, reporters have not been allowed to embed with the troops. This is a significant break from longstanding precedent. Obviously, it's troubling. Obviously, it is dramatically hypocritical given the Biden administration's professed commitment of to a free and fair press and transparency, of course, with regards to, you know, we already knew they were hypocrites on this because of their continued um, prosecution of Julian Assange. But you know, given that we there is a lot of very justified mistrust of the line we've been sold from the U.S. government about what exactly is going on in Ukraine and what exactly are Russia's intentions, the fact that you have them denying the ability of reporters to embed with the troops is another major red flag and massive question mark. No, that's the part I don't really understand, which is that you know, I was once in the Pentagon press corps too. I mean, look, it's standard. Wherever the Secretary of Defense goes, you go. Wherever the troops are, that's it. I mean, period. Hands, like, end of story. I don't understand. So whenever they're stopping embeds, you have to ask, what don't they want you to see? I mean, this was actually a longstanding practice, too, in the war on terror, Crystal. We would have these, you know, secret deployments in Nigeria or Somalia or uh, Syria, uh, Syria as well, and reporters were not allowed to go. The only reporters who you would have to follow were Kurdish guys on the ground. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of them have their own interests, too. This is the same thing. Like, what, are we supposed to rely on the, you know, the Latvian and Romanian press? No, that's in, in, insane. And they'll distort the information just like the Obama administration did on what was coming out of Syria. And so I think we need to set the context for this. Russia is probably going to grab some territory, right? Why else do the buildup? And to understand why I think it's pretty understandable that Russia is going to try to claim some territory, I think we got to go back to 2014 to 2016. In 2014 to 2016, the Obama administration participated in a plot to overthrow the properly elected Ukrainian government. Now, the guy was a bit of a shitbag, so I'm not, like, trying to defend him. He seemed like he had some serious corruption. But the reality is, we, over, we helped overthrow, we as in the West, helped overthrow their government. And we installed our own business-friendly puppets. Because, you see, 
there were many investment opportunities, my friends, and the business opportunities just couldn't be passed up. And it sure would be great to take a nation right on Russia's border and flip them, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that strategically just be wonderful? And I'll take us back in time. This is, I think, about 2015. Unfilter was actually documenting this in real time. I have a very vivid memory of it because they were bullshitting us so hard back then. And Jen Psaki, who is now the spokesperson for Joe Biden, was also, at this time, the spokesperson for the State Department. I have played this clip on the show before, but I think it's a good reflection that shows you the Obama administration was meddling at the time. The next step here we're very focused on is getting the government uh, of Ukraine together with officials from Russia to have a discussion. The international community, the United States can be a part of that. We're happy to be. But there are those who would see irony in the counter narratives that are going on. Uh, the West seemed to support uh, the protesters for months as they uh, occupied Independence Square, a democratically elected government is chased from office. Now these protesters uh, are able to kind of write their own story. And yet now the people in Crimea are saying, well, hey, wait, we want to do the same thing. So how do you square these two narratives? The Crimean government wanted at the time to succeed. Now, you could argue maybe Russia was involved with that, but it put the Obama administration in this really almost immediate hypocritical position because for a year they were supporting the opposition. They were supporting the movement to overthrow the government. They were rah, rah, rah protests, rah, rah, rah people's choice. And then Crimea comes along and Crimea wants to succeed after the government had just been toppled by the West and though the Obama administration was, no, no, that's bad, that's bad, we don't want these protests, people's choice is bad, that was the hypocrisy that this interviewer had caught Jen in. Well, it's not about what the West wants. Uh, Crimea is a part of Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine is Crimea. Ukraine represents all of the people in Ukraine, including the people in Crimea. Obviously, there's going to be a discussion about where to move forward. We'll sort that out, though. Now, uh, some of this really came to life, or came to light, I should say, uh, when Victoria Newland, who was the right hand to the State Department at that point in time, when Victoria Newland's call leaked, what's amazing is I played this audio on the show back then. What's incredible is is the context that it has now with Joe Biden as president. It's amazing to go back and revisit this clip now because what you'll find out is Biden was a big part of this. He was smoothing things over. He was the celebrity that came out and smiled with his perfect teeth and made everybody feel great about what's going on. You know, Biden brought legitimacy to the process as the vice president back then. Uh, and so he is deeply connected to this entire thing. And so I'm going to play a, a longer portion than what you typically would hear of the leaked audio of Victoria Newland. Please go Google her so you know who I'm talking about. Victoria Newland. This is the extended version of the leaked audio of basically plotting how the new architecture of the Ukrainian government will work. So that would be great, I think, to help glue this thing and have the UN help glue it and, you know, fuck the EU. No, exactly. And I think we've got to do something to make it stick together because you can be pretty sure that if it does, if it does start to gain altitude, the Russians will be working behind the scenes to try to torpedo it. And again, the fact that this is out there right now, I'm still trying to figure out in my mind why Yanukovych did that. 
But in the meantime, there's a Party of Regions faction meeting going on right now, and I'm sure there's a lively argument going on in that group at this point. But uh, anyway, we could uh, we could land Jelly Side up on this one if we move fast. So let me work on let me work on Klitschko, and if you can just keep, I, I think we want to try to get somebody with an international personality to um, come out here and help to midwife this thing. And then the other the other issue is some kind of outreach to Yanukovych. But you know, midwife this thing. You know, the overthrow of the government and legitimizing our new. Uh puppets that we've put in there we need some celebrity and help to midwife this thing and then the other the other issue is some kind of outreach to yanukovych but we probably regroup on that tomorrow as we see how things start to fall into place so on that piece jeff uh when i wrote the note uh sullivan's come back to me uh vfr saying you need biden and i said probably tomorrow for an attaboy and to get the deets to stick so okay. biden's willing okay great isn't it nice that biden's willing isn't it nice so that's from, I think, 2015, when they were uh, kind of orchestrating this entire thing. I think it came to its climax in 2016. You can go find episodes of Unfilter while I co- where I covered that happening in real time. And so that's the context of how fucked Ukraine is and why Russia might want to meddle a little bit and reclaim some territory. And the Biden administration is deeply, deeply connected to Ukraine in a very corrupt way. In the email, Vadim Pozyarsky, who is an advisor to a Ukrainian company called Burisma Holdings, thanks Hunter Biden for inviting him to Washington and giving him an opportunity to meet his father. The paper also reports that an email from May 2014 shows Pozyarsky seeking advice from Hunter Biden on ways to use his influence on behalf of Burisma, which gave Hunter a lucrative job on the board of directors. The email contradicts claims by Joe Biden that he's never spoken to his son about his overseas business dealing. So it's a little bit um, messy. So it's interesting this is going down during the Biden presidency, isn't it? And Biden himself has bragged about using his influence to control all of this. And I think to kind of appreciate this, and I'll have some links in the show notes. To appreciate this, uh, I would read some of this because it's how we moved in there in 2014 to 2016, it was special. <laughs> and uh, it was really through using the IMF and offering them a lot of money, giving them the money to build their own army, giving them a lot of money to do things we want. That's a part you have to understand. The IMF gave them a series of economic reforms to achieve. And when they achieve these economic reforms, uh, which include uh, cutting wage controls, um, it included reducing their health and education allocation. I'm not kidding. That, that actually was also what made up the bulk of the employment sector for Ukraine. So when the new government made those cuts to get the money from the IMF, they had to lay off their largest sector of employment. It also was a reduction in their health sector. All of that to meet the guidelines and the economic goals of the IMF. And Biden helped orchestrate that. It started in 2013, actually. And I'll have a link in the show notes that talks about this. The problem was in 2013, Yankovich, the president who had been elected, turned against the West and ended trade talks.
talks with the European Union and started talking with Russia. That happened in 2013. And that's when the shit hit the fan for Ukraine. Now, he realized the mistake he made months before his overthrow and tried to re-engage talks with the West and re-get get plugged back in into the West economy when he realized what was coming for him, but it was too late. It was too late. The wheels of overthrow had already been put in motion. And it's, it's, it's Russia and the U.S. essentially using Ukraine as a proxy. And it's not just the U.S., it's really the entire West. It's NATO. It's the IMF. Uh, and Victoria Nuland was over there helping oversee this, and Joe Biden kind of came in as the closer. Joe Biden was like the guy that sealed things up and gave them the money from the IMF, which gets, you know, of course, <laughs> it's in dollars. It's a check from the U.S., of course, because that's how, that's how this whole thing works. It's IMF money funneled through the U.S., and it's a check in U.S. dollars because we pay everybody in cash. And Joe Biden was the one that kind of got to uh, flex and get the new government to pay to play ball if they wanted their checks. And there was a series of checks that they could earn if they were good little boys. And Joe Biden leveraged that position to do things like fire the prosecutor who was investigating his son for corruption and to just put things in the right place so that way they would be available to the West as needed. Now, things went off the rails when Trump came in. But how do I know all of this? How, how do I know this is the case? Because Joe Biden brags about it. Um, I remember going over convincing our team, our <coughs> others, to convincing us that we should be providing for loan guarantees. And I went over, I guess, the 12th, 13th time to Kiev, and, uh, and I was going, supposed to announce that there was another billion-dollar loan guarantee. And I had gotten a commitment from Poroshenko and from... Uh, Yatsenyuk that they would take action against the state prosecutor and they didn't. So they said they had they were walking out to the press conference and said, no, nah, I said, I'm not going to, we're not going to give you the billion dollars. They said, you have no authority. You're not the president. The president said, I said, call him. <laughs> I said, I'm telling you, you're not getting the billion dollars. I said, you're not getting the billion. I'm going to be leaving here. And I think it was what, six hours. I looked, I said, I'm leaving in six hours. If the prosecutor's not fired, you're not getting the money. Oh, son of a bitch. <laughs> got fired. And they put in place someone who was solid. What do you do with all of this? That's that's where I've been at. And I, I've I've just got no more fucks to give. I'm I'm sick of trying to convince people who don't understand where we're at. Too much is going on, too much is changing, it's time to move. This is the new understanding I've come to with the show. I I'm, I'm no longer tr gonna try to convince people and accommodate people. We gotta move on this stuff. So I don't know what my new schedule is. I don't really have a new plan. To be honest with you, I've kind of come to a new realization. And this is why I've been so damn angry 
is because it's all about the money. The money is corrupt. All of it. And until we fix the money, we can't fix the world. And inflation is eating the West. And I'm going to play a clip from Larry Kudlow. All right, here now is the great Larry Kudlow. I'm not a big Kudlow Kudlow fan. I got to be honest with you. But the old codger nails it with this particular analysis. Larry, you don't have enough TV time today. Uh, big news, uh, CPI 7.5%. You are the expert. So again, I, I care, and I know you care, about American families. So if you have unsecured debt, um, rates are going to rise, you're going to pay more. At the pump, you're paying more. At the grocery store, you're paying more. If you rent, you're paying more. If you buy a used car, you're paying more. What impact is, is this having on the American family? By the way, the unsecured debt part, that's very interesting. Uh, debtors are actually helped by high inflation because real interest rates are negative. That's the only part uh, of the population that would be helped. Everybody else, middle class families, blue collar families, working folks get killed because inflation is rising faster than wages. Wages aren't pushing up prices. Prices are causing wages to try to catch up. And it's not about the pandemic, and it's not about supply shortages. It's because we have been spending way too much federal money, and because the Federal Reserve is buying all that deficit financing, and they are monetizing the debt. The Fed is creating money, and that is not stopping. They're still creating money. We are not even close to the peak. And today's number was worse than last uh, month's, and that was worse than the month before. The trend line is up. And it's called hardship for everybody in this country, just about everybody, not debtors necessarily, but working folks. We are seeing the worst economic conditions of my lifetime. <clears throat> I really got born at a real sweet time, you know, <laughs> Really, a lot of crap has gone down economically in my lifetime, in my adult lifetime specifically. Uh, the reality is, is that inflation is bad everywhere. I, I uh, was looking at a chart, and I mean, it's particularly bad in the U.S., even if you go by the 7.5%, which we'll get to that. I don't actually think 7.5 is likely accurate, but we'll, we'll get to that. But even if you go by 7.5%, it's still really bad, really bad, uh, to the point of where I am concerned about every single one of you out there. And I, I don't think we have been raised, at least here in the States, to think about our money as a tool that we can use to invest and work for us. I think we think about putting it in a savings account and, and getting some sort of interest on there, but it's just a joke now. It's so bad, even CNN has noticed that the dollar is turning to shit, and they bring on a government official, I forget his name, to try to sell a little hopium to us all. As we learn, inflation is near a 40-year high, climbing 7.5% in just 12 months. We learned today from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. It's the steepest rise since 1982. President Biden today acknowledging that inflation is putting stress on Americans' budgets. It's also a huge political liability for President Biden. A new CNN poll today shows that nearly six in 10 Americans disapprove of Biden's performance as president. Much of that is driven by his handling of the economy. 62% of Americans disapprove of Biden's handling of the economy, while 37% approve. CNN's Vanessa Yurkevich now looks into the growing sticker shock on everything from cars to your grocery bills. Uh, we don't need to go there. I think you know what the situation is there, although it is bad. I'll skip the hopium part. But uh, the hopium that they're trying to sell us is essentially 
oh, it, it's going to get better. Um, just give it a little bit of time. It's going to get better. But the reality is, I don't see how that's possible. And I, I wish I could say something differently because I don't want to scare anybody. I'm not trying to freak people out. But I guess I, I do want to give you my thoughts on it so that way if you're taking in data points and you want to consider what to do about this, we're not doing anything to fix the problem. I mean, the interest rates are likely going to go up, but it's such a complex issue. And we're still printing money right now. That does take a couple of years before that being turned on or off even really makes a difference. And it's it's disturbingly clear that the Biden administration really has no idea how to solve this problem. Look, again, slight digression. Inflation is up. It's up. And coming from a family when the price of gas went up, you felt it in the household. You knew what it was like. It matters. He always goes for this. He always tries to imply that his middle class connections make him understand things. But again, actions speak louder than words. I would love to believe that's true. Look, again, slight digression. Inflation is up. It's up. And coming from a family when the price of gas went up, you felt it in the household. You knew what it was like. It matters. But the fact is that if we are able to do the things I'm talking about here, it'll bring down the cost for average families. Bring down the cost for average families. I don't know why they keep moving all that, but the fact is they keep down the cost for average families. I don't know why they keep moving all that. You mean prices, I believe. And look, the fact is that we're in a situation now where, uh, um, you know, you should have peace of mind. I know food prices are up and we're working to bring them down. As I said, I grew up in a family where the price at the pump went up, you felt it. And I understand. But these things are necessities. We're working to bring down prices where they're not totally what the families, in fact, uh, have to pay now. It doesn't even make any sense. And of course, they've put they've put a big banner behind them saying, you know, trying to bring down the prices for families. They're trying to make a show that they're doing something, but they have no answer. I, I remind you of this clip I played from November of Biden's energy secretary when she laughed at the idea of resuming domestic oil production. This, I, I grant you, is a mixed bag solution. But during the Trump administration, we were an exporter of oil. It also stimulated the economy and bringing the cost of fuel down is also reducing the cost of goods. It's one of the most direct one to one things you can do because the cost of fuel impacts the cost of absolutely everything from flights to bananas. So it's a real nice lever you can have on the economy. And it also has some significant security aspects of it because you're not relying on a cabal who personally hates you. In the case of Biden, the energy cabal that is the Saudis and Biden have personal bad blood. You can look that up. It's true. <laughs> and it's affecting this. Right. So that's why when the energy secretary last year laughed at the idea of resuming domestic production, it's incredibly, incredibly cold when you consider how this issue actually impacts the people. What is the grand home plan to increase oil production in America? <laughs> Oh, my God. <laughs> that is hilarious. Yeah, it's so funny. It's so, so funny. And then later when she was asked a follow-up question on what is the amount of oil barrel usage or the amount of oil used in the United States per day, she didn't know. Would that I had the magic wand on this, as you know. <laughs> yeah, you're the energy secretary. 
What is the Granholm plan to increase oil production in America? <laughs> oh my God, <laughs> that is hilarious. Yeah, it's so hilarious. It's so hilarious. And, and their only salient idea that they even seem to have right now is let's just let's just eat the cost. We'll just I know it sucks for everybody right now, but let's just eat the cost for a little bit because it's better for the environment. Oh, look at this. The average price for a gallon of gas is going up about one cent a day these days. 346 is your latest national average price. I wish it was 346 here. That, if I saw a place that had three, that would be the cheapest gas I have seen in a long time. But uh, Lauren, yep. Jen Psaki says that, watches you on your screen, that is not the president's you know, fault. And Edward Lawrence really pressed her on that. What is the administration doing to bring down the price of energy? And she mentioned everything that drives up the price of energy. Listen. What about encouraging the, the investment in drilling in other places in the U.S.? Uh, again, I think the president's view is that we are, uh, it is a huge advantage to us to be a leader uh, in the clean energy transition. And over the course of years and decades, we've become a clean energy superpower. I would note a clean energy superpower. It's a space race for clean energy. Again, and you can ask the oil companies this, there is land they're not all drilling on. Every lease is not used. I'd encourage them you to ask them that question. Are you grokking how ridiculous this position is? So for environmental reasons, they don't want to drill and, and, and consume oil domestically. We still consume the same amount of oil. We, we're, it's just somebody else is drilling it for us. And in this case, it happens to be an evil cabal who was likely tied to 9-11. And God knows what else, from journalist murders to all other kinds of things, right? That's who we're financing right now. So that way we can say that we're winning some made-up clean energy space race. And their solution is just everybody needs to go buy an EV. That'll solve it. Well, thanks, everybody. Whoa. All right. We've got good audio. Thank you, everybody, for coming. This is a very excited day. Thank you, Mr. Secretary, and it's great to see all of you on this fantastic day but we're not going to go electric fast enough if we don't have the ability to eliminate range anxiety for people and to be able to have them plug in wherever they live wherever they work wherever they want to head and so today to make sure that every american can not just purchase an electric vehicle but use it wherever they go we're so happy to be able to give guidance to the states across the country about how to access the funding in this uh, in the announcement today which is five billion dollars and the guidance for states for setting up up to 500,000 electric vehicle charging ports across the country. Yeah, everybody go buy an EV. So a middle class who is being absolutely destroyed by inflation and raising prices, so their savings is being robbed from them, and the prices for everyday goods like groceries and gasoline are stealing their purchasing power, they expect the consumer to buy EVs, even, even if they could subsidize these EVs. People can't afford a $2,000 car, let alone a $10,000 car or a thirty dollars or $40,000 car. But even if they could, 
These EVs are net consumers of power. We haven't solved the energy problem. We've just moved it. It's not a solution, and it involves more government spending when we are in the middle of a dramatic deficit and incredible inflation that is likely way beyond 7.5%. And it's not just bad here in the States. It's bad anywhere that has been printing money. Former estate agent Graham Smith will tell you the cost of living crisis has well and truly reached Middle England. Would you like extra soups? If there's some going, yes, please. Yes, which one do you want? I I really don't mind. He lost his job at the start of the pandemic. In two years, his luxury lifestyle and his savings have disappeared. Without something like the food bank, I just don't know. I mean, I've been eating dry cereal for the last two days, so... uh, Yeah, it's been very, very difficult. You know, if maybe we weren't socialized to to laugh and try to keep a stiff upper lip, and instead he was crying and swearing and asking for accountability, maybe it would land differently. But when he talks about, as a grown man who's, what, in his 50s, who has been reduced in the matter of two years to eating cold cereal for dinner, he has to kind of have a laugh and chuckle about it. Because that's the only way we can consume that kind of information now. Two years, his luxury lifestyle and his savings have disappeared. Without something like the food bank, I just don't know. I mean, I've been eating dry cereal for the last two days. So, uh, yeah, it's been very, very difficult. I guess you never imagined this would happen to you. Absolutely not. Not not in a million years. I've been on some very nice holidays. I've, I've, I've got a car. Unfortunately, the engine's broken. I can't afford to fix it, let alone afford the insurance, MOT and tax. It's, um, it's bad everywhere right now. And we're going to be gaslit pretty hard over all of this. We're, we're going to be lied to about all of this. And there is a huge transition underway. Here's another thing to Google. I may have a link to this. I can't remember. Look for a CDBC tracker, Central Bank Digital Currency. There's going to be a, a quick and fast transition to digital currencies in this. And... This is going to usher in a level of spying that's going to make Edward Snowden cry. It's going to be painful. Now, uh, this is a high-level thing. Um, I'm coming, coming at you cold with this, so I do have an explainer video. It's a, you know, it's a grab-your-attention kind of YouTube video, so it's got a music track and all of that, but it does have good information, so I want to play a little bit of this for you to kind of bring you up to speed. These are developed on centralized blockchains by governments who wish to maintain control, full control, over the network. Many governments have already been moving towards cashless societies, but with the global pandemic, it has actually quickened the transition from a manual to a more digital world. According to a new CBDC tracker from the Atlantic Council, 83 countries making up over 90% of the world's economy are exploring CBDCs. Five countries have already launched their own digital currency, all of them being Caribbean tax havens who perhaps want to maybe safeguard against the prospect of economic sanctions. So these are Grenada, the Bahamas, St. Lucia, St. Kitts and Nevis and Antigua, Barbuda. Another 14 states, including China, are currently testing pilot versions of their own digital currency. 
This centralized government-controlled digital yuan is seen as a key development. It will actually help the Chinese government streamline international trade with countries and organizations that have signed up to the ambitious Belt and Road Initiative. The BRI is a gigantic plan for a global network of ports, roads, railways, and other infrastructure to connect China to the world. Other nations that are currently in the testing stage include Sweden, South Korea, and Thailand, which is actually working on a multiple central bank digital currency bridge in partnership with China and the United Arab Emirates. And then there's oil-rich Bahrain, which is still in the research stage and has chosen to actually partner with corporate banks like JP Morgan to patent their own original system of cross-border payments, which will be settled in US dollars. The United States is still also in the research phase with the Boston Fed and researchers at MIT tasked with figuring out how to make a digital currency that is fast, secure and resilient and basically good enough to fulfill the needs of the world's largest economy. So let's discuss some of the potential benefits of CBDCs. Paying a friend who lives in the same country as you will only take a few seconds and the same might be true for friends that actually live in different countries. American currency. Cross-border payments have the potential to be settled instantly with minimal fees. Now compare that to today's reality, where some of the world's poorest people are still reliant on payment intermediaries like Western Union, which actually has fees of up to 10%. I have no sympathy for them, they overcharge. Fees would also be reduced drastically for merchants, who will be able to circumvent credit card processing fees. Now this would be great news for both small and large businesses. CBDCs also promise efficient stimulus payment delivery. So the COVID-19 pandemic highlighted this weakness in the US financial system when the government struggled to deliver stimulus checks quickly. This meant those in need of financial relief were often found to be at the back of the line due to their lack of access to financial services. Assuming that access to digital state money will only require a phone, CBDCs could make it easier for governments to provide targeted welfare payments. Now we Centralized government currencies can effectively be tagged to make them valid only for purchasing certain goods like food. The same principle can actually be applied to ensure that foreign aid reaches the people who need it most, instead of being squandered by inefficient or corrupt governments. But to most crypto enthusiasts, the idea of having a centralized cryptocurrency that actually has the power back to the world governments and of course banks that sponsor them is pointless at best. Spiritual currency. One of the obvious downsides of CBDCs is that governments will still be able to freeze individual accounts, reverse transactions, and prevent people from spending their money on things like Bitcoin, which may be seen as an unwanted competitor. So we see how El Salvador with Bitcoin will disrupt a major corporation. I uh, know that video is a little hard to listen to, depending on if you're watching or listening to it. But uh, the information there, I think, is pretty sound. And um, I... I could see a, a transition being pretty smooth, right? You'd still use your debit card. On the back end, uh, your financial institution is essentially just a proxy for the central bank, a front end for the central bank. Uh, I, I will say, personally, it makes something like Bitcoin more attractive to me because one of the key values, one of the intrinsic values of Bitcoin is that it is just completely divorced from state. It is... On, it is a decentralized math-backed currency that uh, doesn't involve any country. And that I find appealing, and it makes me feel okay about there being uh, a CBDC. However, here in the States, it's it's still really early days. There's a lot of conflicting interests. Uh, there's a lot of political pressure at play. 
Uh, and you could see how Visa wouldn't be a big fan of getting cut out. So those kinds of things are still going to get worked out here in the States. Uh, across the pond, it's moving along much quicker. In other countries, uh, what you say, something like 80. Things are moving quite fast. Uh, and there is a tracker online. But I think the core thing I want us all to take away in this is this particular next bit is not a U.S.-specific thing. This is any Western nation that is printing money right now. We are all in the process of being gaslit, and we are being profoundly gaslit, and it's only going to get worse. And so I want to play a bit of a clip here from Michael Saylor, who is the longest-running tech CEO out there. And I think he did a pretty good job of explaining the reality of inflation, because we're being told it's 7.5%. But if you go to the grocery store or you go get gas or you go to a restaurant, you know it's not just 7.5%. What is inflation? It's not really well understood. Some people think it's CPI. CPI is the rate at which a market basket of consumer goods is going up. But right. the government gets to pick the basket. I've noticed. Okay. If I pick things like uh, Domino's Pizza and streaming YouTube videos, they will never go up in price. I can, actually, uh, I can actually adjust the basket, so I just pick things that don't go up in price. The, the Case-Shiller Index is up 27% year over year, you know, in July. So the price of that average single-family home is up 27%. Homes in Canada up 15%. The S&P Index is up 34% this year over 12 months. What's the inflation rate? If you wanted to buy a basket of desirable stocks, the inflation rate is the S&P Index. So... I can calculate any inflation rate I want. Inflation is a, a vector. If, if I want to be rich, then I need to buy scarce, desirable assets. So my inflation rate is the rate at which Picasso's and Leonardo da Vinci paintings and stocks and, and uh, property in New York City is going up in price, or a house in the Hamptons. That's a high inflation rate. If I want to be a consumer and live in my parents' basement and order Domino's pizza and take Ubers and watch Netflix and stream YouTube, the inflation rate will be the CPI. It'll be very low. So you can have any inflation rate you want. Uh, as a practical matter, the best inflation rate for an investor or for anybody that wants to stay wealthy or be wealthy, if you're concerned about maintaining your economic purchasing power, it's the monetary inflation rate, the rate at which the supply of money is expanding. The supply of money expanded maybe 10% for a decade before COVID, and the S&P went up 10% a year. You know, we know the money supply expanded 30% post-COVID. The S&P is up 34%. The Fed stepped on, uh, on uh, the money printer. The same with the EU central bank. In the Western world, in the strongest countries, we see, uh, we see the money supply expanding 20 25% or more per year. The currency is collapsing. It's, lo it's, it's losing its value. It's being devalued. In, in uh, weaker countries... Go to Argentina, the official uh, inflation rate is 45%, the unofficial inflation rate is 85%. Go to Venezuela, the inflation rate, I mean, it, the currencies collapsed 98%, 99% in a year. Uh, same in Lebanon, 90% currency collapse in a year. So what you have right now going on in the world is currency collapse, which we call inflation and the mainstream view of inflation is it's only CPI, and sometimes it's PCE. It's, it's an index of things not including the highly volatile food and energy. <laughs> right. But in, but in what universe can you live without food and energy? Exactly. But, but it's not really good. Like, common sense says 
if, if everybody tells me inflation rates 2% or 5%, but the houses are costing 20% more or 15% more, and everything, if you talk to anybody that manufactures anything, they'll say that the prices are up 20%, 25% year over year. So how is it I'm supposed to actually buy something? How do you buy a share of stock that went up 34% a year when you got a CPI adjustment of 2% or 5%? So it sounds like the people causing the inflation are lying about the inflation. Classically, I, I, just, I just, first of all, if you define inflation as the CPI, you're using simple arithmetic to describe the economy. You, can know, you, can't define, you can't describe the economy and model it with simple arithmetic any more than you could describe fluid dynamics or aerodynamics with simple arithmetic, right? The fluid is flowing around right. the airfoil. You have to have multi-indimensional you know, algebra and vector calculus to describe a complicated phenomena. The economy is a complicated phenomenon. Another way to say it is the price of everything is, is varying everywhere at different rates all the time. Right. right. Common sense says the price of housing in the Hamptons is going up at a different rate than the price of land in Kansas. And the, and the price will be going, and the price in a certain jurisdiction for a certain use, subject to certain regulations, will go up at a different rate than another jurisdiction for another use. So the problem is inflation. Inflation's a phenomenon whereby uh, a government authority prints more currency, right? And why do they print more currency? Because if I want to pay a trillion dollar bill, I either have to tax you a trillion dollars or I have to print a trillion dollars of money. Turns out that it's a lot easier to print money than it is to tax people. And so it's either inflation or taxation. Throughout the history of the world, from Roman emperors before... You know, Every single coinage system, every monetary system ever established collapsed because of inflation. If you look at the history of, of the Sumerian states, you know, the, the Persian states, the Greek states, the Roman states, Middle East, look at all the, all the Renaissance Italian states, look at every king of England. You, if you just go forward, you find every one of these currencies started by issuing, I issue a coin with this much gold in it, and then I cut it, and I cut it, and then I go to silver, and then I go to copper, and then I coat it with some brass or some nickel. You remember what happened in the U.S. where we, we yeah. used to actually have silver? Silver quarters, yeah. And now we don't because the silver was more valuable than the quarter. Yes. Why? Right? We're debasing the currency, right? So the problem is inflation. And so, inflation, just to be really clear about what you just said, which is fascinating, is caused by expanding the money supply. Yes. Sim simply put, you live in a town, there's a hundred nice houses, there's a million dollars in the money supply, the mayor prints another million dollars, distributes it to the citizens, what's the price of the house do? Right. And, so, and you're, so you're saying that inflation is always the cause of the collapse of the currency, and the collapse of the currency sounds to me like it's the cause of the collapse of the civilization. Yep. Because if, if you look at all <laughs> yep. these wars, right, how long does a war go on? It go, in World War I, every single nation went off the gold standard within a week of the declaration of World War I. The Germans, the French, the, the Brits, the Americans, we printed money. Uh, the money got debased. There was rampant inflation. Eventually, after four years, you can print money for about four years before you collapse the currency, and then you don't have any means to fight the war. The Germans sued for peace because they ran out of money after four years. Now, the U.S. has been a very special privileged position of being the reserve currency of the world, so we've been getting away with it like bandits since 2008. 
but it has been going on since 2008. Yikes. I think the situation is bad. I hope I'm wrong. And uh, perhaps I am. Sometimes I'm wrong. Sometimes. Although, I did say about, what, was it two years ago? We would be exactly in this position. <laughs> I believe I got pretty upset about that, actually. Uh, but we'll navigate it together. I don't have a regular schedule, a regular plan. I'm going to try to let you know when shows are coming. Maybe I'll do like a brief update and then post like some kind of notice. And then you can join me on a live stream. We can chat about it. Because after I wrap up here in the show, I'm going to chat with the live stream and hash things out. Probably say something I'll regret. You can follow the channel at twitch.tv slash unfiltered. And if you want the podcast version, that's always going to be at unfiltered.show slash subscribe. If you want to support when I do a show, patreon.com slash unfiltered. And this show now supports the Value for Value Network. If you want to monetize this show directly, no middleman with lightning payments, grab a new podcast app at newpodcastapps.com. Thanks for joining me. See you again soon. I'll eat your ass.